0: Hello, and welcome to the Chest Journal Podcast, where each month we host a discussion with the authors of important articles from the current issue of the journal, adding context and commentary to the challenges facing clinicians in the fields of pulmonary, critical care, and sleep medicine. To introduce today's topic, here's your host, Dr. Dominique Pepper.
1: On behalf of Chess, I'd like to welcome you to this month's Chess Podcast. My name is Dominique Pepper, and I'm the host of the Chess Podcast section. Thank you for joining us. Uh, today, we'll be discussing Massive hemoptysis Simulation. And we're very fortunate to have Dr. Melissa New as our guest. Dr. New is the first author on the Chess publication entitled Massive Hemoptysis Simulation Curriculum Improves Performance. So, Dr. New, can you please introduce
0: yourself? Sure. Thanks so much for this opportunity to discuss our study. Um, My name is Melissa New. I'm a pulmonary and critical care physician at the um, uh, University of Colorado. Um, My clinical practice is at the Rocky Mountain Regional VA Medical Center and at the University of Colorado Hospital. And I also serve as an associate program director for the Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine Fellowship at University of Colorado.
1: Great. So today we'll be discussing massive hemoptysis, and maybe you could kick us off by, for our audience, letting them know, why is massive hemoptysis so important, and why did you feel the need to do a study to evaluate whether simulation training uh, improved performance?
0: Sure. Um, Massive hemoptysis is a really terrifying clinical scenario, and it's also very rare. So um, we don't encounter it very frequently in routine clinical practice. And I found that it was something that I um, was interested in teaching better. Um, in terms of massive hemoptysis, the the you know, amount of blood that would be needed to get for hemoptysis to be considered massive is um, kind of a subject of debate. But um, the way I think about it is when a, um, there's enough blood where there's concern for oxygenation and ventilation because of Bleeding into the lungs. Um, like I said, it's really rare, but it's, it can be a true emergency. And sometimes providers have to move really quickly to intervene. And I felt like when I was in training, that wasn't something that I was um, getting a lot of experience with and wanted to, um, to learn how to teach better. Um, when I was reviewing, uh, literature about massive hemoptysis, there were two things that came up in terms of, you know, things that will kill people. One is the the fact that you can fill up the alveoli and lose your ability to oxygenate, um, and then the other is if you have a blood that clots in the wrong place, you can lose the ability to ventilate. Um, both of which can happen quite quickly. And while, uh, when in critical care, physicians often have the technical skills to intervene on this. They're you know, having a, a practice approach is something that we don't always have. So this is something that I felt was important um, for for physicians who are doing bronchoscopy or uh, managing patients in the ICU. And I wanted to do a better job of teaching it. Um, so that was one, one of the reasons I wanted to um, to have our fellows practice this and 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 then um, simulate this. Um, th- th- since it's a high acuity and low frequency occurrence, um, simulation is a really good way to, um, to teach this, that, that the this kind of procedure that's in that high acuity, low of occurrence or halo category kind of falls really well into the what's called the zone of simulation. Simulation is a really resource-intensive approach of teaching, but um, for these type of HALO procedures, it may be the best way for us to prepare um, learners to to then act. Um, when I first started teaching fellows about hemoptysis management, I would give them some cases and then have them look at some tools, but it just didn't feel adequate um, to to really preparing them. Um, I was fortunate to get a, an, an internal um, medical education grant at the University of Colorado um, through the, our Department of Medicine to create a simulator. Um, and I, I was fortunate to, we were fortunate to publish the details of that process in a paper that ac- actually accompanies this one uh, called the Creation and Validation of a Massive Homophysis Simulator. kind of goes through all the the ins and outs of how we did the 3D printing of the airway and connected everything up to, to make the simulator. Um, So it was really fun. And we had the simulator to teach our fellows, but I wanted to demonstrate that it was worth the, the effort because it is, it does take a lot of resources and time um, to, to train fellows in this way. So that was the reason that I wanted to turn this into a, um,
1: a study. I think that's really commendable. Um, for those of us who have experienced massive hemoptysis, it is, as you correctly said, you know, a terrifying event that will leave you changed and you realize that seconds matter. And it's really impressive that you went and did an extra step of actually reporting your findings. So maybe for our um, audience, you could give us um, your study design and methods, and specifically, let us know um, what are Kern's six steps for medical education curriculum design, and how did you use that um, to formulate your study design?
0: Absolutely. So, Kern's six steps are um, it's a it's a an approach to uh, medical education curriculum design, um, and they're really Iterative, so they all kind of play off of each other, and um, it's it's a cycle that you don't go through once; you go through it repeatedly to really refine the curriculum. The first step is to uh, is problem identification and a general needs assessment. So looking. For us, we looked at the literature to see um, if this was something that needed to be addressed. Um, and we looked at uh, other papers of um, simulation curricula and hemoptysis curricula and um, and reviewed guidelines. We found that there was um, a recommendation to use simulation curriculum for, um, for HALO events and um, or a very high acuity and low occurrence events. And uh, there I found some some data showing that it would be helpful for hemoptysis specifically, but um, there wasn't a simulator available, and there were no papers demonstrating that simulation had been used for um, hemoptysis teaching um, in a in a uh, evidence-based way. Um, the second step is a targeted needs assessment. So looking at your own learners, um, for us, we did a, um, a local needs assessment of our fellows and asked them um, their self-assessed, um, you know, confidence in certain areas and also what they felt they, they should be able to do in terms of um, their skills when they complete fellowship and are ready for independent practice. Like, should they be able to uh, manage hemoptysis and place on the bronchial blockers independently? And we found that there was a gap, that this was something that fellows did want to be able to do, but didn't feel like their skills were there. Step three is um, to establish goals and objectives. So to uh, identify specifically what we want to teach with our curriculum, what we want our learners to get out of the curriculum. Um, Step four is to identify an educational strategy. And ideally, you're aligning your educational strategy with your need and what you wanna teach. And like I mentioned, simulation for this particular type of, of um, learning objective was something that we thought would align well. Um, so that's how why we chose simulation as our educational approach. And then step five is to implement the curriculum, actually do it. And then step six is evaluation and feedback. And so this is evaluating your learners to see if they got out of the curriculum, what you intended, and and receiving feedback from them to further refine and change the curriculum. So what we did in terms of the simulation curriculum itself was we, um, we developed and pilot tested five case scenarios. And they had a variety of potential etiologies of hemoptysis and some different management challenges, different anticoagulation, different patient characteristics, things like that. Um, and over a 90-minute period, our fellows worked in groups of two or three, um, and they were presented with, with five cases. So they traded off being the primary manager of at least two cases of hemoptysis. Logistically, we actually had two simulators running at the same time, so each of the five fellows going through that that block um, were able to see five different cases and one fellow had to switch groups halfway through. But it worked out so that each fellow got five cases and were, was the primary manager of, of at least two. One of the reasons we chose to have fellows work in groups was, was logistical. It was nice to have them being you know in the room for more cases. But we also felt like the fellows were learning in a different way when they were assisting compared with when they were the primary manager, um, that they felt less pressure. They sometimes were able to, um, suggest things to the primary manager that maybe the primary manager was too stressed out to, um, to realize themselves. And so we felt like they were actually getting different learning, um, and, Also, beneficial learning when they were still in the room uh, assisting the case, but not um, under the pressure of being the primary manager. And then, in terms of assessing our curriculum, we did this in a a few ways. For one, we asked fellows just pre and post session questions about their knowledge and confidence with these skills managing massive hemoptysis, placing an endobronchial blocker. Um, And we wanted to see also if the fellows actually improved during their simulation experience that part was a little difficult because there's not one gold standard or one right way of managing hemoptysis um i asked a lot of colleagues about their approach and got a lot of different answers um and you know sometimes it depended on the the case scenario so um in terms of coming up with a, an assessment rubric this was something we um, debated for a long time. Um, one thing that we, we came across was that we had some colleagues who would, um, let's say there's a bleed in the left upper lobe, for example. They would just always selectively mainstem intubate the right mainstem bronchus. And then others would choose to plus place a, an endobronchial blocker in the left mainstem bronchus. So both of those are great for protecting the right lung, maintaining a patent airway, and ultimately keeping the patient, um, oxygenating and, and ventilating. So you're achieving your main goals, but, um, they're, they're a little bit different in terms of their approach. Um, some providers would choose an endobronchial blocker to selectively, um, block off one lobe of the lung. This is logistically actually really challenging when you're placing a blocker into the upper lobes because the blockers are, um, that we use are fairly stiff. So, um, there was just a lot of considerations. Um, so we actually surveyed, um, a bunch of experienced attendings about what we should use as an assessment approach. We, we presented two options. One would be a skills based approach, which would, would require somebody to Provide you know to perform discrete specific skills, and there would be like a checklist to be considered competent. And then the other option was what we called um, a priority management approach, where um, if the um, the provider did things like adequate airway management, blocking the bleeding airway to protect the non-bleeding lung, those would be considered priority management areas. And when we um, surveyed. Um, attendings about this, the majority actually um, recommended using a priority management based approach. So that's what we went with, um, for our assessment. And that actually also lined up well with the cognitive approach to management of massive hemoptysis that we had developed and taught our fellows. Um, we called this the ABCDE approach to massive hemoptysis. It's not a checklist, but it's sort of like a prioritized cognitive toolbox of interventions. Um, For for example, A is to assess the airway. And under A are things like aspirate the airway, place an artificial airway and and anesthesia consult. Um, B is for blocking the blood where you put the bad side down, lateral decubitus position, use bronchoscopy to lateralize the bleed and place a blocker. And then C would include bronchoscopic interventions to quote cause a clot, things like compression, cold saline, vasoconstricting agents, topical coagulants and cautery. D is for definitive therapy like IR or interventional radiology for intervention or surgical intervention. E is everything else that you would do for a bleeding patient. So um, we we use this um approach to teach the cognitive side of things and then for assessment. And uh, based on our survey results of attendings, um, we found that airway management, blocking the bleeding side, definitive management, and everything else were considered essential for competence. Um, We also added a question about global entrustment, asking about um, the fellows' readiness for independent management of hemoptysis based on their performance. and the other thing that we tracked was how long it took for fellows to complete a case to com- successfully block the bleeding side. So that's how we assessed our, our learners. Um, and uh, it was it was really fun. Um, and I hope that that assessment approach was, um, <laughs> for us, it really worked well. And I think it's a little different than the approach of, of some other studies.
1: Yeah, I think I really appreciated that approach that you took, and I think what's great about it is using those six steps, you were able to establish your learner's baseline, you set yourself a goal, you set the means to achieve that goal, and you did the important step of evaluating whether you actually achieved that goal. And for our audience, I definitely encourage you to look at figure two in the paper, which Dr. New described it provides the nitty gritty on how to go about doing the simulation and definitely useful if you're planning to replicate her work and uh, perform your own simulation studies. So, uh, Melissa, let's jump into your key findings now. Um, What did you find uh, with your simulation, uh, with the performance of your uh, fellows, and how did you interpret your findings?
0: Sure. We had 19 fellows participate. and and then overall, we found that fellows really reported significant improvement in their self-assessed knowledge and confidence in their massive muphestis management and endobronchial blocker placement. I'll mention that we didn't um, we didn't require fellows to place an endobronchial blocker, but uh, most of them tried, um, and I think they took advantage of the of the um, of the session to try something new. Um. All of the fellows who participated in the simulation, they all found it valuable. In terms of competency, based on our um, definition that we developed, um, on their first management attempt, 12 fellows or 63% were competent, and this increased to 89% on their final management attempt. Um, The few who did not demonstrate competency, they had difficulty, one had difficulty in identifying the bleeding site. Um, which is actually something that happens clinically, um, especially if there's not a known bleeding source. Um, And then the other had trouble blocking the bleeding site. Um, We looked at the question of global entrustment, which we scored on a five point Likert scale, with one being should not perform and five being fully independent. Um, All the fellows started at a three or higher, but we still saw improvement um, between the first and final attempts that was statistically significant. Um, The other measure that we tracked um, was the time to management um, from the start of the case to when the bleeding side was successfully blocked. And we found that that time also improved with practice.
1: So the interpretation of your study would be that the simulation curriculum actually improved their observe competence, then knowledge and confidence in managing massive hemoptysis. Um, Some may push back and say, you know, there's certain criticisms in your study. Um, This was a single-center study, so it may not be generalizable to other centers in the United States. It didn't involve real-life patients. Um, We don't know uh, whether this... um, curriculum uh, has a long-term benefit? Does it just work for the first couple of months? Does it need to be refreshed after every six months, every year? And then, as you mentioned, um, they didn't have to place um, an actual endobronchial blocker. So maybe you could comment on those limitations um, as well as the strengths of your study.
0: Certainly. Um, It's true that we just did this at our our one institution. Um, I um, I would love to see it <laughs> replicated elsewhere, and and um, I think that there's great work being done by other educators who are interested in this area. Um, I think that um, this need is beyond what we have at our institution. I think this is this is probably a, a broader need um, for other um, fellowship programs and and even you know practicing providers. Um, uh so, in terms of the um the our levels of assessment so um Kirkpatrick's levels of assessment um there's you know the 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 gold you know the ideal which would be um, uh, showing clinical impact and um, change in, in actual behavior in the clinical um, realm, that is, that would be ideal. It's really challenging, um, both because of the frequency of this event, which is extremely rare. Um, and then also there's just so much variability in, um, in case presentation, in, um, in, uh, in assessment. It, it would be very difficult for these kind of scenarios for us to, um, assess it in a clinical environment. Um, it would be, you know, Aspirational, um, but in terms of um, of our outcomes, we felt like simulation and assessing a simulation that had a varied um, varied um, case scenarios was as close as we could get to um, to real life. Um, I'll say, from an anecdotal perspective, we've been doing this simulation for several years now for our fellows and. Um, fellows who have gone through the simulation they have come back to me and said and told me of of real life clinical scenarios where they um intervened they were called to a patient who was having massive hemoptysis and they did everything right from what i could tell Um, So, um, from that perspective, I'm I'm really proud that this may be having um, true clinical impact. Um, That's not something that we've been able to um, to measure in a systematic way, but I I do believe it's there. Um, And then the the question about um, um, uh, generalizability to sorry I'm sorry, what was the other question? (laughs)
1: Um, the other one was, uh, I'll, I'll just say, I, I definitely agree with you. Um, uh, getting uh, this uh, simulation in real life would be, you know, almost near impossible. So you've got to do the best that you can. So I agree with you. The, 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 what you've put together um, is phenomenal. Um, the other question was um, single center and uh, also duration of benefit.
0: Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. So single center... Um... Uh that was a challenge that we had uh just from a logistical perspective of of actually physically having and making the um the the simulators. Um, um so it you know, is is it possible that there's this is not generalizable? Certainly, but I I think it would, you know, the, the need is there. Um the um, retraining question is a really good one. Um, the, so since we've been doing this now for several years, um, uh, including the, the data that we published here, we, the so half of the fellows who participated in this particular year that we, where we analyzed the da- and published this data, they, ha- half of the fellows had participated The year before um and so we looked at that to see if that impacted their ability to um to perform better on their first time around um and we did not find um a huge difference um in terms of of um of benefit i think the the challenge here was one the sample size it's it was only 19 fellows and so half of those is, is an even smaller number. Um, so, part of that is the sample size. Part of it is the, our assessment tool um, is, is um, fairly general. So, it, it's, it's using sort of an entrustment style approach. Um, so, I think our assessment tool was not sensitive enough to pick up the nuances of, um, of, of specific skills. So, for example, um, the fellows who have never come across an endobronchial blocker typically the first year fellows um, in in our study they had no idea what to do with it and the learning curve for that particular skill is really steep um they once they know how to do it they can do it much more fluidly that does you know atrophy with time um, it's something that probably does require retraining and when we asked our um experienced attendings how frequently they would recommend that this simulation be repeated the recommendations um, that were based on their you know experience with the the simulator um, was to repeat it every six to 12 months um, we've been doing it every 12 months and um, I think that's been good for us you know ideally the, the more the better but um but in terms of time and, and resource limitations that's something that we've been able to achieve. In terms of strengths um i think that our rigorous use of the kerns steps um and assessment along the way is a strength. The other thing that i'll say that i believe is a strength is that um we Use a fairly pragmatic approach to a lot of parts of our curriculum development and implementation to try to make this um, not just beneficial, but also sustainable. So, using a group practice approach, um, using 90 minute um, sessions where we have five fellows coming through in a 90 minute session, sort of maximizing our resources, that for us was pragmatic and helps it be sustainable and I'm glad we were able to demonstrate benefit even with that approach um, we didn't use um, a um, a uh, strict simulation based mastery learning approach um, which others have used in simulation practice um, and while that's a really beneficial way of teaching um, we found that this our approach was um, was appropriate for our um, case scenarios and um, our clinical this clinical scenario that we chose, um, and I think it was it also allows us to continue to um, to achieve this type of simulation based training um, within our our um, learner and educational constraints.
1: Yeah, I think what I really like about your study is that you um, allowed your fellows to to willingly be exposed to these high-stress environments which you describe. Um, and that is just so important. And anecdotally, I'll, I'll share with you, uh, when I was a second-year resident, we had to resuscitate someone with an upper jab bleed. And in that simulation, we failed miserably. Um, and unfortunately, the patient, uh, this, the, 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 the simulated patient died. But within an hour, Strangely enough, we had a real-life code, and the experience that we got from that simulation actually allowed that patient to survive. So um, simulation is so important, and it offers an environment where you can both learn under these high-stress environments. Um, Melissa, I want to ask you how... What were the costs in setting up the simulation curriculum? Um, there may be some who are in your situation and as some say you know um, the, each person is you know 1000 mistakes ahead of someone else. Um, so you had the benefit of learning from how to set up the simulation uh, program. What advice would you give to people who want to set up a similar program? What costs should they consider? What hurdles did you have to overcome? What advice would you give them?
0: Sure yeah. Um, the, the way we developed our simulators, um, was I, um, I obtained some, um, old mannequins that were going to be discarded. Basically they were no longer in use, um, but they were mannequins that could be intubated. Um, so all I had to do was replace the lower airway tree. Um, so, um, I worked with a collaborator to, um, 3D print an airway tree. Um, we used a specific printer that allowed it to the, the ultimate, um, airway to be a little bit pliable. Um, uh, I don't remember the, the specific name of the printer because it's very technical, but, um, it is in the, um, in the paper about the simulation, uh, simulator development. Um, so we, we basically Printed the three D airway tree and to the ends of it connected IV tubing. Um, the The mannequins that we used were had a full torso or a full body. Um, I imagine you could probably do this with um, a, a mannequin that is just the airway head, although I haven't tried myself. Um, and then the other um, the other main costs were and, and considerations were trying to find. Um, an appropriate space to do it. So, um, we've, we did it in a simulation center. We've done it in our bronchoscopy room. We've done it in our ICU. So places where, um, we have the resources to, to actually use the clinical tools. Um, I've always used disposable bronco- bronchoscopes because uh, I wanted to make sure that I wasn't, um, putting, um, our reusable bronchoscopes at risk with the, um, with the fake blood, which was is basically just saline, food coloring, and cornstarch, um, but just to make sure that that wasn't a, a concern, we've used disposable scopes. Um, and then, just I think one of the main benefits is that with this type of simulation, um, we were able to use the actual clinical tools that we're using in a um, a true clinical scenario, um, which I think really heightens the transferability um, from the simulation to the real-world clinical scenario. In terms of costs, like, oh, sorry. Oh, go ahead. (laughs) Oh, yeah. The direct costs, um, I was fortunate to have the mannequins um, uh, basically donated. Um, the, um, The airway, 3D printing of the airway and ended up costing us around $600, um, once we got everything kind of set up. So for, you know, cons- considering the, the very high costs of a lot of simulation projects, um, we were really fortunate, um, to, to have this be fairly affordable.
1: Yeah, it definitely sounds uh, in the right price range, and its uh, I mean, the saving of life and um, the, the imparting wisdom and expertise to your fellows who become attendings is really important. Um, Melissa, what are your next steps? So you've been able to show in this study that the simulation curriculum improves competence. Um, are there plans to expand it? Are you going to combine with other um, uh, programs, fellowship programs, to educate? Uh, what's the next step on the horizon for you?
0: Sure. Um, there are other um, uh, other people that I'm aware of, um, and probably others I'm not aware of, um, who are working on, on simula- hemoptysis simulation curricula as well. Um, I think the next steps that would be interesting to me one is that is can we can we um, make this more available? So um, if if we're able to replicate. A simulator and a simulation curriculum in other places that I think would be a really interesting demonstration of dissemination that um, uh, is um, is is kind of unique to this type of uh, of medical education where we're kind of uh, MacGyvering together um, uh, simulators um, on a on individual basis um, in the absence of a commercially available affordable option. Um, and I think in the, in the era of 3D printing, this would be very doable. Um, and, you know, I would be op- very open to, uh, to collaborating with anybody who would like to on this. Um, I think one of the things that I've struggled with, um, and, and speaking with others that would be interesting to look at more broadly and with a, um, more national group is to look at, um, how do you truly assess this kind of, um, these, these types of, um, procedures and performance of these types of, of, of high halo procedures where, um, there may not be one step-by-step way of um, of ma- correctly managing um, a case. Um, so, what if there could be a more um, consensus guideline in terms of teaching and managing hemoptysis? I think that we've gotten a good start. Um, I'm, I think our approach is a valid one. Um, I think it would be um, helpful for educators more broadly to have greater input into that.
1: Yeah, I think I really applaud you and your team for uh, doing the hard work of, you know, getting down to figuring out, you know, what are the steps involved and reporting your findings. And it's really encouraging to see that, as you've said, you know, we have these high acuity, low occurrence events, which we need to be trained on. Um, They're pretty terrifying and having a simulation experience definitely seems to help. Um, Melissa, I'm going to give you the last word here. Um, How does your study advance clinical practice and uh, what concluding remarks do you have for us?
0: Sure. Um, so from a perspective of teaching homoptysis, we were the first study that I'm aware of to assess the benefit of a simulation curriculum for massive um, That We showed that simulation for massive homoptysis is beneficial. And I think because of that, it's worth the time, the effort, and the resources. And this study adds to a growing body of literature that simulation for teaching HALO events is beneficial. So I think there's more to come in that area. Um, So uh, we're just so thrilled to be able to um, share our curricular um, experience and our resources with anyone who's interested, um, anybody would like to replicate or adapt our curriculum. We try to include everything we could as supplemental materials to try to get it out there as much as possible. Um, between this paper about the, um, the curriculum and the one about the creation of the simulator, our hope is that others would have a good, you know, start to have everything they, they could, we could give them to use these resources and put it to use in their own setting. So we're, we're just really, um, glad to be able to get this out there. Um, and hopefully it's, it's, um, it sparks some interest <laughs> in this area. Um, I think that one of the things that we were glad to do is to um, overcome this barrier of of not having a simulator to be able to teach on um, for an area that could really benefit from it. So um, hopefully others can be similarly inspired.
1: I'm sure they will be, and for our audience, please feel free to reach out to Dr. Melissa New. Her email address is uh, in the paper. Um, so a very big thank you to Dr. Melissa New for a really great conversation, and a big thank you to our CHESS community for joining us. I'm Dominic Pepper, and this is a CHESS podcast.